0: This is Stephanie Angstaff and Sue Miller, and this is the Collective Creamery podcast where we're crafting the conversation on American artisan cheese. Today we're bringing you an interview with Elizabeth McAllister and Mark Gilman of Cato Corner Farm in Colchester, Connecticut. Sue, what an amazing visit we had! Do you remember that moment that we observed in their cheese shop? Oh my gosh, it was so special. I I was moved to tears. It was it was a beautiful interaction between a customer who reached out her hand, shook shook the hand of Elizabeth McAllister, who's been there since the seventies, and thanked her for being there. Yeah. In suburban Connecticut. Right. Raising Jersey cows, milking 45 Jersey cows and selling cheese. It it
1: was just there was so much power behind that message. Yeah. And I kind of think Liz sort of welled up a little bit too. She did. She understood the significance
0: of it. Yeah. Yeah, They're amazing. Yeah, they really are. We had such a nice visit. We got to tour through the creamery and cave. We got to meet the jerseys and visit the dairy barn. And then we sat down with Mark Gilman and his mother, Liz, who started the farm. And they told us all about their cheesemaking journey. I think this is a really good example, a great model for all of us about a farm and cheese operation that is really producing cheese for their farmers market customers first and foremost. Oh my gosh, they have such an extensive
1: lineup of cheeses, yeah. like and so many flavors. You know that anybody walking up to that table is going home with a wedge of cheese.
0: And you know the the golden colors oh. and the te- the goopy textures. I mean, they just they're so inviting. Right. Yeah. We we, <laughs> we brought home a little bit of hooligan, which is one of the stinky. Um, probably
1: most well-known cheeses that they make outside yes. of that region.
0: I, I mean, think you were a little bit stunned by how much of how big of a slab I put on my bread.
1: <laughs> That's great. Oh <laughs> um, yeah. my gosh, the best way. Um, we had that great bread, that
0: <laughs> yeah, nice dark, bread, yeah. dark grainy bread. But anyway, they I, they're just wonderful people and great models. They do five farmers markets, big big markets. In New York City, their main one is Union Square Green Market, and they have a shop in Colchester, Connecticut. You can go by and visit them on the weekends and taste all the cheeses. It's an adorable little wooden shack on the property, which they've turned into a cheese shop. And um, we hope you enjoy this interview where Mark and Elizabeth take us on their cheese-making journey.
1: So we're sitting here in Colchester, Connecticut at Cato Corner Farm. And I have to tell you, we have the most luscious half wheel of hooligan I have ever seen. This is a cheese that I have fond memories of. One of my first trips into DeBruno Brothers, and actually I was talking about this on um, another podcast interview, the cheesemonger there, Hunter Fike. Two special cheeses he handed me. One was Vermont Shepherd and the other was Hooligan. So I took them home that day. On my way home, driving down the road, it's kind of a warm day, have the air conditioning on, Mm -hmm. see my neighbor, I stop the car, I roll down the window and he pokes his head and he says, what is in that car? (laughs) I'm like, it's Hooligan, this is a really great cheese. He ended up developing love for it too. So it's pretty exciting to be here. With Liz and Mark, and you know, today we're going to be, you know, talking about cheese from Cato Corner up here in Connecticut. So, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks for stopping
3: by. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you like stinky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we do like stinky, and we just came in from the barn where um, Mark and Liz gave us a tour of of the facilities. And of course, one of the highlights were, were the cows. You yes. know, those Jerseys are so healthy and happy and robust, and I'm sure that they just can't wait for spring to get here too. But they are looking darn good out there and producing such beautiful, luscious milk. So, yeah, you know, this is great. We have so many questions for you.
0: <laughs> Liz, you're, you're quite a pioneer. Can you paint the picture of what this farm was like when you came upon it and what, what year that would have been?
1: Um, we, moved
3: here in, we moved here in 1979. Um, this farm has been had cattle on it, mostly dairy cattle, since 1720. So the one of the original owners raised oxen for pulling and the farmer before us was had a, a a 40 I guess about 40 45 holsteins and he shipped his milk but he was wanting to go out so and his son had moved away so he um, he wanted to sell the farm and we were very lucky to get it it was at a time before real estate prices went up in Connecticut and he actually um, held the mortgage for us, so we didn't even have to go to the bank. And it it was very, very lucky. But at that time, I was raising sheep and goats, so we had only a couple of cows. Right. How many acres is the property? It's 75 acres. About half of it is open, good pasture, or um, at that time it was all hayland. I think some corn, too. And then uh, the other half is uh, very ledgy with with wetlands and woods. Right. It's very, very pretty um, land. It's it's not you know a nice level, stoneless land, but it, the whole farm is, is very nice. It's a nice little piece of New England.
1: Right. If you know anything about Cato Corner Farm or have looked into it or have met these folks, you know that Liz is the driving force behind this beautiful herd of cows and this dairy. I mean, you know, I am so impressed with the fact that, you know, You're here, you're farming, and you thought, well, maybe, maybe the future for us is to make cheese and to milk a herd of cows. And you took that on pretty much single-handedly, didn't you?
3: Well, um, my, Mark's dad, um, my ex-husband was, he was involved in getting the, the idea going and went around and, and, and he, he supported the idea that this was, that was the way for this farm to go. We knew we didn't want to milk cows and ship milk. And we had been raising uh, goats and sheep mostly for the Easter meat market, and that was really not a satisfying thing. Right? Did you grow up on a farm, Liz? No, I did not. Oh. I grew up in Rhode Island. Um, okay. My father was a doctor, and he, um, but he always liked growing his own food, and he always knew where to get the first asparagus from some farmer or somewhere or other. And so we grew up. I grew up as a, a foodie, not to mention. A cheese foodie. He was also a cheese cheese nut. I mean, he was crazy about cheese.
1: So. You know, isn't it so interesting how those like early experiences influenced us so profoundly and deeply in how we move forward in our lives? You know, A, agri- rooted to agriculture, even though you didn't grow up on a farm, through good food. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I feel like it's important to this community to keep this farm here going since it's what, 1700s?
3: Yeah, Did you say 1725? <laughs> we put the we put the land into preservation with the help of the federal government because it's a grasslands reserve program, and with the Connecticut Farmland Trust. But it was the first piece of land that went into protection in this area of Colchester, and now we're surrounded by other farms that are protected. We have behind us the state. Bought a, a very large piece of land that was mostly pasture, but they put it into protection, not for farming, but right. still. So we kind of were the beginning of that of that um, movement in this part of 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 Colchester.
1: Yeah, w- uh, my community tra- was a transitioning community too. It's not so much focus of agriculture, but it has agricultural roots. But when you drive to our farm, there's housing developments. You know, we were talking about that, Mark, but you know, as people took their land and preserved it, then adjoining landowners did the same. So you started that whole trend here that probably has, you know, resulted in this beautiful landscape right here in this community.
3: Yeah, it's a nice chunk of land now. It'll be preserved. Yeah,
1: for both wildlife and farming. Right. Okay, what I want to know is, what were the first cheeses you started making?
3: Well, I found I had some recipes that came from the um, let's see, the British. I don't know if it was British Museum. It was the Brit- It was a British Library of um, Science, and they were old recipes for things like Caerphilly, Wensleydale. Um, there was a recipe in that bunch for um, what's the blue that's re- that's made in near Wensleydale.
2: Wednesday or Wednesday maybe it's blue or- Wednesdaydale, or Wednesdaydale I don't know and Wednesday.
3: so I had those recipes and then I went to a um a one-week workshop at Cal Poly which was the, uh, at that time they were given maybe four places in the country Cal Poly was one and my sister-in-law lived there so I did that and I it was great it was not it was not about making artisanal cheeses but it it was using the equipment in fact the equipment they had there was what I had at home <laughs> which was kind of Amazing. So we, uh, I learned a lot of technical stuff there. And then we had uh, some small workshops. A friend of mine who also still makes cheese, she has a sheep dairy in lime, got a Sare grant and brought a Belgian cheesemaker to this country. And he was here for a week. So four or five of us who were, four or five of us who were not, who were interested in starting cheesemaking went to that. And then, amazingly enough, this was in '96, uh, I guess. The state of Connecticut had a program called "How to Keep the Farm and Milk the Cows" or something. It was some funny thing about value-added uh, prop, you know, programs. And so that all kind of was a push in the right direction. Right. So, do you
0: feel pretty supported um, by the state of Connecticut and what you're doing? And and what is it like to be one of the few? Dairy farmers and cheese makers in the state.
3: Um, I do feel so, they've been extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. Right from the uh, inspector who helped, instead of like say that's it, you're out of business. He said, okay, you need to do this, and then he told us how to do it. And and they and then we got we've gotten grants from them. They've helped us with marketing. I mean, it's just we've gotten several crucial grants. They help. We got a grant from them to um, wasn't a grant what was matching grant, what mm-hmm. for, for to put in the cave and that was a tur- whole huge turning point for us because we were aging in all kinds of places and and um, Mark knew that we needed just to, to do something better than that so
0: Mark when did you come into the picture and how. <laughs>
2: Sure, so Liz actually got you know licensed to make cheese in 1997. At that time, I was teaching seventh grade down in Baltimore and uh, just starting to get a little better at it. I mean, teachings hard, especially your first first couple of years. Uh, but I was excited about what what Liz was doing and uh, had spent spent 10 years you know living in cities and thought, you know what, let me let me uh, head back. Head back home and work with her and see if see if we can you know build a business together. So that was in 1999. So this will be this will be 20 years for me uh, this this summer.
1: So how did things change then? I, I mean, Mark, did you like start to take over the the cheese making and marketing? And Liz, you just c- continue to run the herd. Like just, I mean, that's a big enough job as it is. Um, but boy, it must have been a relief for you.
2: <laughs> I would <laughs> it say it been. took a it took a few years. I mean, we kind of worked together on stuff, but but I was. More interested in the, in the cheese side, um, I think, for, without speaking entirely for you, I mean, part of the dream of, uh, you know, the idea of the cheese was how can, I, how can I keep the cows? So it was a natural fit that Elizabeth was, was managing the herd and, and I was working on the cheese. And then we worked on the, on the business and marketing together, actually, for a long period of time. I went to New York City every Wednesday, she went every Saturday, and we did farmer's markets.
1: You both did the markets.
2: For a long wow. time.
1: Mm-hmm. What was the first farmer's market you had in New York City? Which
3: one? What it one? was Verdi Excuse me. It was Verdi Square. Verdi Square was, a, it's a charming little park at 74th Street where Broadway and Amsterdam come together. And it was a great little market. It was a wonderful startup market for us because there were a lot of appreciative customers. The the green market was dying to get cheesemakers because there really weren't very many there. Were it,
1: you the first one into that? no? Because Hawthorne Valley was there. Oh, Hawthorne Valley. Yeah, right. Yeah.
3: So, and I there might have been an Amish cheese maker too who came in. Okay, but there were very few, really few.
1: Okay, so. so what time did you have to get up in the morning to make it to that market <laughs> and drive Well, that's, a neat, that's an uh, always the same. You always have to get up at 3.30. I mean, you have to leave at 3.30, not get up.
3: You have to leave at 3.30. It's
1: a long day, isn't
3: I it? Have, yeah, yeah, it's really a long
2: day. Yeah. But <laughs> it's but it's a super exciting, super stimulating day. I mean, right now we do three markets in New York on, on Saturday, or Union Square, we're at the Grand Army Plaza Market in Brooklyn, and also smaller Fort Greene Market. But it is, uh, you know, it's it's a very long day, but you have just you know a lot of wonderful customers and tons of uh, sort of instant feedback and and yeah. you know grat- You know, you feel you feel a lot of gratitude and and uh, just a good response from from customers. So it's very exhilarating, although you're exhausted afterwards.
1: Did you get connected with a lot of chefs in New York through those markets? Has that been instrumental to growing your business, or is it just like the the customer, the regular consumer. Customer.
2: No, there, there definitely are a lot of chefs, especially at the Union Square Market. A lot of people who buy much, of, you know, a good, a good chunk of their food from from the produce folks there, and they'll come and get cheese as well.
1: Well, that's great. Wish we had more chefs
0: coming to my markets. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really?
0: Come on, guys. <laughs> that's, I think that's one of the things too we wanted to talk in more detail about with you two because. As we're going through these interviews and meeting more cheesemakers and dairy farmers, we try to think about what different differentiates um, each of us. You know, and one of the things that stands out for us, maybe it's two things: this amazing herd of Jersey cows and this pasture-based uh, system that you have, um, and then the fact that you're able to do so many markets and direct directly sell so much of your cheese. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the breakdown of like how much cheese you're selling directly and and what sorts of markets you're doing and why those are significant for you?
2: Sure. I mean, I mentioned the New York markets mm-hmm. and uh, we still probably do about around a third of our sales to the New York City farmers markets. We then have a little shop here on the farm and we do a couple, three markets in in Connecticut. Um, two of those actually have have a winter component. And then, then, you know, the other ones just for the summer. But uh, I'd say overall we're we're doing, you know, more than half of our business is, is direct retail between those between those channels and a very small amount of mail order. So obviously that's uh, that's great in the sense if you're getting, you know, the top top dollar for your for your product, it it also takes more labor. You need to have people to stand on the sidewalk all day and, and sell those pieces of cheese. So there, you know, there are obviously trade-offs to that. Um, The remaining, you know, 40, 45% or so, we sell wholesale, and that is mostly to stores and restaurants in Connecticut, Boston area, Providence, New York. So fairly, fairly regional. We have a little bit of cheese. We, you know, we ship outside of this area, but uh, almost all of it's within 100 miles or so.
1: So what do you look for um, when you're hiring somebody to do farmer's markets? What kind of qualities are you looking for in that person that's going to be representing all of the hard work that you do here on the farm? and be the face of Cato Corner, handing that cheese off to a customer. When I mean, you have, I yeah. know it's challenging, isn't it? Yeah. I mean,
2: certainly, you know, personality obviously is important. You have to be outgoing, um, but then someone who has at least some appreciation for um, investment in local food, and that they can demonstrate that in lots of different ways. Uh, but they they have to part of what we're asking them to do is to educate our customers about our cheese and about our farm. So we want them to. Be able to talk articulately about that. Um, I do like to have anybody we hire come and come and spend time at the farm, see the animals, make cheese with me for the afternoon if they can, just so they can really get an understanding of, you know, of the process of of the cows, of where the you know where the milk and the cheese come from, because right. uh, that's that's really what, you know, pe- partly people are coming. You know, hopefully they're coming in part because they like the cheese, but they're also coming because they want connection to the farm. They want connection to the to the place oh, that it definitely. came from, from right. the animals, the people who made it. So we we look we want our our uh, employees to be able to represent that.
3: Right. One of the founding uh, principles of the green market, the New York City green markets, is that that the farm needs to be represented at the market by who by whomever is. Working so you, your workers have to be educated. They prefer to have the farmer there very regularly, and the idea is for people to learn that there are farms in, within a range of New York City that are producing their food and why that's important. Right. So
1: and real farms, real yeah. farms, yeah. yeah. So
3: it's it's um, that's they push farms to do that.
1: They, do both know. of you still go to market then? I don't. Okay, on occasion, right? Markets.
3: Yeah, I
2: probably I. I I probably go about once a month, maybe slightly less now, but, uh, Mm -hmm. it's actually part of it is we have, uh, we have two people who ride down in Connecticut and take up both seats in the van. So (laughs) when I go, I have to take the train in. Oh my gosh. That's
1: funny. (laughs) I bet your customers are really excited when you're there. You know, it's fun to
2: see people. I mean, there's some people have been supporting us and buying from us for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Yeah, so it's really, right. it's really great to see them.
1: We we often say sometimes when you're at market, you get so invested in these families, you know, who have been shopping with you week in and week out, and you know so much about them just from, you know, talking over the table and sharing cheese. And that's really great, isn't it? Yeah.
3: One of our workers who's been with us for many years at Grand Army Plaza will um, send me a a picture or something that's of. So, uh this is so and so's new dog, or um, <laughs> what you look can. at this kid. Remember when he was three? <laughs> oh man, that's great. so. It's really it's cool. cool.
0: <laughs> was this? I mean, it's amazing your ability to sell half of your production directly. And how many pounds are you making per year? By the way, we've been
2: around fifty thousand pounds 50, or so, so for a year. Of for a year, directly.
0: That's amazing. Is that was that a conscious decision to say, hey, we want to be able to get a good price for? our Jesus so we want to get to as many markets as we can is that something that supports your operation here yeah absolutely I mean
2: that's absolutely yeah. uh, it certainly does it's uh, you know and maybe as a part of that what we've tried to do then is always have you know 10 or 12 varieties out at once so I know that um, you know lots of people will only stick with making a couple of varieties and if they're if they're selling them wholesale say they're focused on just having one or two that are really outstanding what we've what we've tried to do is have a range of styles. You know that that said, they're all raw milk, they're all aged cheeses, but they'll be, it might be, you know, two months old, a sort of the soft, runny hooligan. They might be a year old, something dry and sharp, um, our aged Bloomsday or dairy Reserve, for instance, and then a lot of stuff in between. So, and some blue cheese. So we try to have, you know, options so that when people come to the table, we can help, we can help, uh, we can be, yeah, like a mini, a mini shop, and help them find what they yeah, like. So it, something
0: for everybody. Um, so it has yeah. definitely
2: driven our, driven our, our business model for sure.
0: It's a lot of
1: work managing all those different styles of cheese, and we tasted through them earlier today and oh my gosh the flavor profiles are so complex and interesting i love the fact that you pop about you know that Bloom's day in your mouth and you know maybe like four or five or six minutes later you're like you're still thinking about it <laughs> that's a sign of quality
0: isn't it
3: yeah, yeah. So, that's good <laughs> yeah how does your quality.
0: <laughs> can you talk about how your um your feeding practices contribute to these cheeses that are just bursting with flavor and your decision to make raw milk cheeses, too, and stick with raw.
3: I mean, I believe that, that the local um, food source is very important to the flavor. I feel I've tasted a lot of cheeses, and I can taste our cheese, and I'm never sure quite what it is that makes— I mean, it's obviously the milk, but, but you know, they're on local hay. They're on local hay. They're on pasture. We do feed some concentrate, which is obviously not local. And um, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I, I just don't know enough about other places and how they feed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But
1: you, I'd say you certainly get a sense of place yeah. all across your cheeses. Like, yeah, definitely a common theme in them of the milk. Right. Know? I get.
3: I mean, right. it, I think it must be the cheese making too. So I don't. I don't know, Mark. What do you think? I mean,
2: we've certainly avoided, you know, we avoid fermented feeds. We have high quality, you know, hay and pastures. I mean, like, you know, Liz is a, and her staff do a great job with cows. I mean, they're very healthy. They spend a lot of time, you know, taking care of the animals, making sure the milk is just, you know, top quality. So that's, that's obviously where it starts. And then, uh, you know, we do have, you know, we do have our own, our own, uh, underground cheese cave with lots of natural and ambient, you know, molds and, and yeasts and bacteria in there. So certainly that those are helping kind of finish the flavor of the cheeses as well. So I think it all, it all comes together.
0: What are, what are some of your cheese making philosophies or sort of guiding principles, Mark?
2: Um, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, yeah. I guess, uh, I mean, certainly we've, you know, we've talked about trying to make, you know, a variety of styles so we can, we can meet different, uh, different, taste, you know, profiles. Uh, I, I think that, uh, I think maybe, maybe, I mean, it would, we're, because we're making so many different cheeses where, you know, what we're trying to do with each one is maybe a little bit different. So obviously, uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, some of the Alpine styles that are a little bit nuttier and sweeter. We're looking at, uh, we're looking at some of the washed rinds where really are very, quite very full of flavor. I mean, um, I think we've scared some people off sometimes with the hooligans, but, uh, that's, you know, we like them with that good, good full funk. Um, well, the
1: name tells it all.
2: that was, that was the idea. Yeah. Um, we certainly, I mean, the name we've had a lot of fun with our names for sure. That's, uh, both with the cows and with the cheeses. that's been a very collaborative process. Lots of people have contributed to that. I think, you know, certainly trying to not to, you know, not to mask the milk for sure, but to, but to bring that to the, bring that to the fore. Um, we, you know, we do embrace the, the, the natural rinds and, and, uh, we don't try to get rid of, uh, you know, get rid of a lot of molds and such that are on there. Um, I guess the one exception would be cat hair. That's the one I've consistently tried right. to get rid of when we do have it. But usually, to me, it's a sign there's not right. quite enough salt on that on that cheese. Yeah. So that's a, right. um, that's maybe an indication of a, of another quality issue rather than rather than uh,
0: right. a
2: mold we're trying to
0: eliminate. Um, and it seems like your cheeses, the rinds are so. They're so biodiverse. Like, you you know, you won't find a pristine, like super monotone color rind in your cave. They're so complex and they're so nice. bursting with flavor. And I think that that seems like a really the signature. Old world. They do, yeah, yeah they seem really world. old world. I love that. I, just even visually. They're so attractive and, and fun and playful. And then also, you know, just in terms of the flavor, it's right unlike anything else. Yeah, yeah. really cool. And, and I guess speaking of, you know, letting the
1: milk come through
0: as principle
1: of this cheese making, I mean, I we need to talk about Mark. He's part of the Cornerstone Project where um, with Parrish Hill and us at Birch Run, the three creameries, we really like working together. You know, we kind of have all this like, I don't know, a common vision similar aesthetic and um, you know it's really fun to see how each cornerstone is similar and a little bit different and interesting but you know you're expressing that milk in, in its purest form with those native cultures and God knows you were so helpful to me um, you, you don't know as much because I took all of your notes because I was really struggling with, with getting my culture started this second time so um, yeah let's talk about cornerstone and you know we kind of wrangled you into that <laughs> project i'm so glad well, you that you-, <laughs> you
2: invited me which was which was fabulous i was yeah. uh you know honored to be asked and then also very excited about it i mean this is you know the idea of of creating your own starter cultures is something that liz and i had, had talked about and with you know partly with the uh, notion that, you know the understanding that you know most cheese in this in this country right now is made with a fairly small group of you know freeze-dried cultures from from a few international companies so um how can we better express the flavor of our farm? So cornerstone, you know, for us was an opportunity to kind of learn how to do that. Um, so that's you know that's that's one part of what excited me about it was how do, how do we learn how to make our own starter cultures and uh, and create a good cheese with that. Then the then the second part is the is the collaborative process. So we're uh, you know we're working working with with you Sue and with with Peter and Rachel and then uh, um, the just the comparative nature of that, of that as well. How is, how is the cheese that we make similar to and different from what they're doing? Um, what is that, what can that teach us and, you know, the American cheese community about, about starter cultures and about, uh, about raw milk and about how, you know, about, how milk and culture and feed and all these things in, you know, affect, affect flavor development. So that that's the sort of second part of it that we're, that we're, we're just excited to be a part of. So thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh, it's so cool. At that discussion, we're like, who – right off the bat, you know, Peter and Brian Civicello Ch- were like, Mark Gilman is perfect for this. And then, you know, I knew of you from De Bruno Brothers, and I was totally game. Um, but it's been really fun, and I think it's exciting for us to be um, – I don't know, like uplifted by the energy of the community over this project. I think we were all kind of taken by surprise, wouldn't you say? I had no idea that people would respond yeah. so positively to it.
2: I mean, I think what's interesting is that it's, you know, it's only 30 or 40 years that people have not been using right. only, only their own starter yeah. culture. So, oh, so, so you know, right. it's part of it is... I don't know if it's a little nostalgia or just uh, you know, kind of uh, how did we so quickly lose this this uh, this art, this skill of making our own making our own starters. You know, that said, obviously there are reasons why people made that switch in the first place. Some of them have to do with consistency and and you know, sort of dependability and obviously keeping track of food safety, which um, certainly we can we can do with with the cornerstone. But it's you know that we introduce more variables that we have to be you know pay extra attention to. So so it's I know it's not going to be you know make, making your own cultures that's not gonna be for everyone it's gonna have to be small yeah. farms doing doing their own raw milk and you know under controlled very controlled uh you know controlled uh conditions but it's i think uh i think you know people are responding to it because it is it is uh it's it's taking us back you know, closer to the to the essence of the of the milk and the and and the expression of the farm. Pretty neat. Yeah,
3: you know, I grew up in Rhode Island, and at that time there were three locally made cheddars, and I never thought about it growing up. But it occurs to me now that all of those three farms were using their own culture. They that none of them, <laughs> and I I absolutely testify that those. <laughs> We're unique cheddars. Yeah. Mark's tired of hearing this. But well, no, that's great <laughs> I'm the
1: passion comes through. You know?
3: But, I mean, it, it's so exciting. It's a connection to some, this thing that maybe doesn't exist a lot anymore in a lot of the world. I mean, it does exist in some parts of the world, that's for sure.
2: I also feel like there's still a lot for us to learn. I mean, I don't know how yeah. you feel, Sue, but I feel like I'm, this is very much a beginning project you know, for me, and I, you know, I don't know how the cheese is going to be different you know, in a a year or two, and what do I need to do to, you know, to recreate the cultures that are more similar to the ones we started with, you know, what are some, there's some challenges that we haven't faced yet that are going to come up that uh, um, I feel like there's still a lot to, a lot to learn.
1: Yeah, we're kind of fledglings in this process. And, you know, we've embarked on a project with um, the University of Connecticut to kind of study this cheese, and it's a really great story. Can you talk about how that happened with one of your uh, employees on the farm? It's really
2: a great story. Sure. I mean I mean, so Dr. Dennis D'Amico is, you know, is a the University of Connecticut now and um has done a tremendous amount of work on, you know, food safety and, and uh um improving uh you know, improving food safety for cheesemakers. Um and I was fortunate to have a uh to have a young man, uh um Ben Robinson came to me who wanted wanted an internship. He wanted to learn a little bit more about cheesemaking. and so he spent uh he was a, he was uh, a student at UConn and about to enter the graduate program and uh, spent spent some you know spent a summer working for us and then you know got very excited about what we were doing and very excited about the cornerstone project and suggested that he you know approached Dr. D'Amico and asked if he could do this as a as a graduate study project. So um, so Ben is helping to kind of you know spearhead the collecting of the samples and the research that goes into uh, seeing how the Seeing what cultures are active at different at different stages in the process, how those evolve, and and doing a little comparative study of the three uh, of the three different cornerstones.
1: Yeah, we're we're hopeful we're going to learn more and more about this. Um, we also are aging some of our cheeses in a remote location, remote location at w- or Weaver Farm in Vermont. And uh, Stephanie and I this weekend got to take a look at our cornerstones. We have pictures of yours okay, okay, yeah. to see how they're coming, and uh, it's just fascinating process like you know is all of our cheeses being aged in a different location really going to change the profile of it from our individual farms you know I think what's exciting about it is it's not just one
0: there's like three of us doing and other people who are curious too oh everybody wants in on it yeah yeah. this is a question for both of you Sue and Mark are there is there one other cheese in your lineup that you kind of can't wait to make native cultures for and see how that Gets expressed. We, I Do talked about one? this with Mark. So did go,
2: you? you? I mean, I think that uh, this is actually not even so much cheese that's in our lineup. Is that we've, you know, going back to sort of Liz's observation about the about the New England cheddars. I mean, I think we, I think that might be the the next step would be for us to develop a mesophilic culture because the cornerstone is using a thermophilic culture. So develop a mesophilic culture that then we could use to make a sort of cheddar style because it does seem like there's the opportunity in that type of cheese to really to really express the the milk and the and the yeah, land. Right.
1: right. I'm just holding my own. (laughs) I'm going to watch Mark (laughs) on that. But I I do think I I agree with you about the cheddar. Like that is like, seems to me like a natural next step for that, that culture. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. I mean, you know, look at how it is in, um, in Great Britain, you know, those English cheddars are all using similar, you know, native cultures and boy, those cheeses are
0: so darn good. So let's do it here in Connecticut. (laughs) That's great is there what are people buzzing about in your region here? I mean you mentioned the new brewery down the road, which just opened this weekend and sold out a beer and so now you've got a nice new partnership with a brewery which is always good cheesemaker always wants a friend in beer um, what else what else are people talking about in your in your food community?
2: I mean I, I think I mean certainly certainly beer you know the, the beer industry uh, probably like everywhere I mean there are so many new you know, micro breweries, uh, you know, little little individual, you know, families making, uh, you know, opening a place to make to make different beers, and it's uh, that's quite exciting. I mean, beer and cheese go very well together, and uh, I think there's some lots of opportunities for us there for pairing and, and just getting people interested in the food. Connecticut also has uh, has a lot of small wineries, not not quite as many as Pennsylvania, which I understand it's a huge industry down there, but uh, um, but that's uh you know we've lots of folks coming up there's a winery about a mile from us as well so people coming out they'll come buy cheese and then head over there so um so that's there's some good good partnerships for us there i mean one thing that i've been impressed with what you know the two of you have done is just how connected you are to the pennsylvania cheese community and i it it struck me that we we haven't really done that so much in connecticut there aren't as many of us but there are some and i feel like you know we and all of us, all of the cheesemakers here in Connecticut should do more to kind of work together, reach out, reach out and do things together. Because it can, it can be done in a way that supports all of us. We don't have to compete with each other. We can, we can support each other. So
1: yeah. Right. And competition um, isn't a bad thing. You know, it makes us, makes us all better at what we do. Yeah. But we can be friendly yeah. in it. Yeah. Sure. And, and reach out a hand or whatever. How many cheesemakers are permitted in Connecticut? Do you know? At least Six.
3: People go in and out, right. especially some of the smaller goat dairies. But um, I, I, I'm not today. I'm not sure, but I think it must about be around six. six.
1: How many do you? All right. Here's another. I'm going to ask another question about a number. How many dairy farms are left?
2: Around fifty, I would, I would think. I, I think mean, they so. said sixty-five yeah. last year, and then Lossom. our inspector told us a whole. You know, yeah. I think they lost fourteen just in Eastern Connecticut. So wow. maybe, maybe fewer Jeez. than fifty. So
1: Yeah, it's important to keep. <laughs> those who are here still going yeah new Jersey's the same way there's like 50 or 60 left a couple years ago there were 80 you know and that's an agricultural state too i mean you guys have great land how yeah here we are anyway mm. we can connect cheesemakers i can tell you
0: how we set up our guild <laughs> <laughs> anybody wants to know that and your uh, most adorable cheese shop seems very well received in the neighborhood uh, can you tell us about how that's evolved and, and what kind of local following you have?
3: <laughs> well, m- most of Colchester didn't know we were here for many years. Oh, and Jesus. I would go to New York and be selling cheese at Union Square, and someone would come up and they'd look puzzled. They'd look at our sign and they'd say,
1: you're from Colchester?
3: <laughs> we live, and they would be a mile away. All the
1: time. But didn't even know yeah. you
3: were there. No, and the yeah. town... People went to the town hall and asked, oh, "Where's Cato Corner Farm?" And they wouldn't know. So the the awareness of farming in Connecticut in at Colchester, excuse me, was really problematic. And one of the things we've had to do was we had to establish an ag commission, and we had to um, actually get the town town to sign on to the right right to farm, oh, which good. which Connecticut has established, but each town in in each town in Connecticut has the right to adopt or not, and Connecticut is very. The towns are very, very close about their keeping their privileges and rights, schools, etc. Right. So, um,
1: do you have an AG security act in your township? Where, no, not uh, the sa- not the same as
3: Pennsylvania or okay. New York. Um,
1: in other words, you mean land that has to be used, kept in agriculture? Is that what you mean? Well, no. I was thinking about in in our township, um, we have this Ag Security Act, which protects you against nuisance complaints. Oh yeah, you have that. They, well, okay. they've they've signed on to that. Okay, right? right.
3: I'm not sure. You know, it it it's yeah, it's pretty good. Okay, pretty yeah. Good. Do, I'm
1: not sure what. We oh, call we it. were talking about that's the right to about farm. the farm, the farms you know, the little farm store getting going and everything. Right. Yeah. And
3: so we we had people from all over the place, not in town for many years before we had a lot of people in town. The winery helped pick things up because people would come from out of town and go there, and then the local people went there. So did it
1: just happen organically though, like slowly over time, or yeah? Because I feel like my creameries, like you, I'm probably known better in Philadelphia than my own neighborhood. Yeah. Whereas Stephanie, I feel like your community really knows that you're there. You have that farm stand. So I was you know, picking your brain earlier about that because we're going to open a little farm store. And I'm like, I, won't, I wonder if anybody will find us. But they found you. So that's good. I'll just have to get a brewery to open next. It door. was packed in
0: there when we arrived. <laughs> no, standing room people. only. Yeah, I
2: mean, I, I think we we have actually really great support the last you know the last you know several years. I mean, it's yeah. it is it has evolved organically and and slowly. And you know, first we were open you know Saturday afternoons only, and then we were open Saturday and Sunday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it's sort of grown. It's grown slowly. But we have we have great local support from you know from customers, and part of that is you know more and more people trying looking looking to buy locally, uh, and part of it is just time and you know word of mouth and such. Uh, we had you know we did a. Uh, we're, we're trying to expand our facility a little bit, and we bought some you know bought some new equipment, and we did a Kickstarter campaign to help with that. And the support from our local customers was fabulous. a uh, lot oh, that's of great a lot of great support from people for that.
1: Uh, that yeah. is heartwarming. I know yeah. when we were in the store, yeah. there was a a woman who was buying a piece of this, a piece of that, very thoughtfully tasting through everything. And when she realized that Mark came in, she stopped and she turned to Mark and said, "Thank you so much for being here." I mean,
2: it's yeah. very, it was very, it sweet. Almost it's very
1: may, sweet. It may be emotional because yeah, it's like <laughs> the gratitude of the community. Like right. you're such an important. We're talking yeah. about like the cultural impact farms make on communities. Yeah. And clearly yeah. that's happening here. All right. Liz and
3: I are like. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is emotional because it, it was a long time coming, We're and hard you at feel it. Right. for a long time you feel kind of isolated in a in a community that has a lot of suburban people, and they don't they seem very content just to go to the stop and shop or something and buy all their food. And then when people start appreciating you and understanding it's good to, that it's good to have a farm uh it it's great it feels much better (laughs) yeah it
1: makes the hard work feel really good you know i always think about that for dairy farmers too it's just like you're just you're in the work all the time but most of them don't understand how the consumer feels about them we're fortunate because we get to meet with the consumers consumers yeah it's pretty cool yeah
0: yeah we we do ask these questions to everybody, but um, it's a question for both of you. What what comes easily to you, and then what are, s- like, some of the challenges that you're working on <laughs> personally? You
2: mean as to the business and yeah, the farm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess for me, I mean, I <clears> – <throat> there's, you know, there's two things that I do that I just love. I mean, I love making cheese and, you know, taking care of the cheese, and I uh, – and I and I love selling the cheese. I, I enjoy the interaction with customers, and I I love having my hands in the curd. Like those those, yeah. I could do those things all all day. Um, I like to have the finances under control, but I don't necessarily like to spend time doing them. And uh, you know, and some of the you know sort of planning and management. Um, again, I like to have it organized under control, but uh, I think I have to make myself sometimes step back and and you know take some of the, take time to do some of the things that need to get done. My natural instinct is not to do that; is to go out and, and go to the cheese cave and, you know, flip some cheeses or. Right. Cause or, there's always
1: so much to be done. There's right, always something exactly, to do. You're never exactly. done. Right. I get that. Mm. That's, how about you, Liz? Uh, the cows
3: have been always the most important. Um, so I don't ever want to give that up. I mean, I, I'm physically, I'm 75, so I'm not going to be able to do that forever. But, and I, I could do, I like even cl- crises. I I like working with the animals. But I I find it frustrating to be, you know, to have challenges you can't always deal with very well. Labor being one of them. Um, just management of, of financial stuff and having to, uh, you know, be really careful about how you do it. And we try to treat the animals well. We've put the farm in preservation and we... Um, try to k- pay a decent wage to our laborers, our help. So it's, it's challenging, even when you're selling of a high priced value added product, it's still challenging to keep all of those, those important things, and, and not just let one or two of them slip by.
1: Right. yeah, Right. So what do you think? What do you think? Um, as farmers and cheese makers? What do you think our challenges are going to be? And in- I mean, this is kind of a loaded question, in the next three to five years. I mean, do you think it's going to be, you know, increased oversight in food safety? Is it going to be carving out more of the marketplace? Is it labor, finding labor to help, you know, contribute to the hard work of the farm? I don't know. I'm just throwing out some ideas. I know it's hard to answer that on the fly.
0: I wonder. This is not a question for me, but I'm just thinking about so many conversations we've had this weekend, Sue, in, in traveling through Vermont, and um, kind of like the the brand of artisan cheese being like almost hijacked by some larger companies now lately, and this trend towards like using the word artisan even if you're not. And I think it's hard for us as a cheese making community smaller scale producers to come to a consensus on like what is artisan cheese like if we can get more consensus around that maybe there will be um maybe we'll have a better chance of differentiating ourselves and what we're doing is is special the concern of the commodification of artisan cheese yes yeah we've been talking about that a lot sorry sorry to take the question yeah
1: (laughs) but you guys may have different
0: yeah yeah
3: well, I think it's important to keep the connection between the farm and the cheese. I mean, that's not the same as artisan cheese. Farmstead cheese is something different, mm-hmm. and it can be both artisan and farmstead. but um I think that's an automatic differentiation that yeah. it's not it's not that difficult to keep that keep that uh, tie. Mm-hmm. And that's one differentiation. I, I mean, I certainly know that um, I mean, even 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 when people are buying in milk and making cheese, you st- they still can have the connection with the farm from which the milk came. Right. So, I mean, that's one possible way that, that we can differentiate ourselves from commodified, quote, artisan cheese. Right. right. And that's, I suppose, the whole thing about local and, and where things come from, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Do you think scale enters enters that conversation you know you know with creameries buying in milk and you know I, I mean i think that's so important to to really pay the farmer a fair wage um also we know that some of these large companies are just buying commodity milk um so i wonder yeah i like the idea of you know having that relation direct relationship with the farmer whether you are farmstead or buying in i, don't know
2: what I mean know. i think there are a number of challenges here that are you know all of them are on that sort of general landscape and, and each one's going to be you know, important in different ways at different, different farms. I mean, certainly, you know, continuing to find good labor is going to be a, be a problem, especially in terms of animal care. Um, there are more people who want to make cheese than want to milk cows. Um, the market is, you know, there's, there's more and more good cheese in the market, which is very exciting for us. And, and overall, you know, people do continue to eat more cheese, general consumption of, of, you know, specialty cheese continues to go up. So that's, that's hopeful, but I also feel like, um, each individual, you know, farm or cheesemaker is going to have to, you know, work a little harder maybe to, to find their niche and make sure that they're, well, you know, putting out their best, their best products. Um, I think, I mean, the question of scale is one that we've, we've struggled with I and mean, we've been, uh, you know, pretty much around the same size for the last five or six years. And, um, you know, that's, that's been great, but you know, our expenses keep going up. And so for us, you know, we really sort of felt like, all right, we have to be able to, to grow a little bit. Um, we didn't feel like we can do that just on the, just on our farm itself. when we only have about 35 acres of pasture. We've got a, you know, we've got a small, a small milk parlor. Like it didn't seem possible for us to be milking more cows. You know, right now we're milk around 40 at any point in time. Um, didn't seem possible for us to be milking more of our own cows. So the thought for us was, you know, we can buy a little bit of milk from one of our neighbor farms, um, which will also help them. I mean, obviously the milk price has been disastrous for dairy farms, so we can pay them a little bit more and uh, take just a a portion of their milk, but it will allow us to, um, to grow a little bit. And, you know, hopefully that, you know, from the business plan perspective, it makes sense. It helps gives us a little bit more room at the end of the year. I mean, I think, you know, if we look back over the last 20 years there are lots of ways we could say we've been very successful um, in terms of making teas we're proud of in terms of supporting our families and, and their employees but we also can look at you know we've never uh, produced quite enough margin that we can invest in the way we want to you know reinvest I should say in a, in our farm um, yeah. or or offer health care to our employees like that's a that's a huge cost we've got to obviously start making a big chunk more money before we're there but it is that's that would be a goal and I feel like that's such a that's so important um, to people's well-being and if that's that's a sort of disappointment that I have had with that we haven't been able to do that. So there's lots, you know, we have lots of, uh, you know, and and this, this, so this is directly related to the question of scale. I mean, presumably by making, you know, 30 to 40% more, more cheese, that gives us enough more money without increasing some of the other costs that we can do that. But uh, we're just heading down that road. So I hope that's, uh, (laughs) I hope that plays out the way, you know, in reality, the way it does on paper.
1: Well, you certainly have the groundwork laid for that. You
0: know, yeah, it is. It's about finding that sweet spot.
3: No, it's. I was thinking, it's. It's just like the weather, which we can't control <laughs> and sometimes can't predict. I mean, so many of these are variables that we don't have a handle on. Not just this farm, but so many farms. Right. So, uh, in in some ways, you have to try your best to plan, and then go along and make steps or changes as you go. Right. I. I don't know. It's.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think places like Cato Corner Farm go are are so uh, are strengthening that that conversation about farmstead and artisan products because of the of the honesty of the work that you do, yeah. of the cheese that you're making. Like it, it. I feel a sense of pride to be in an industry with you doing what you do. Yeah. You know, it's like. We're all doing the best we can. We're doing it honestly, and our customers know that. And I think, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. Yeah, that's very sweet. <laughs>
2: Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.